BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, I'm Molly Sims. And I'm Emma Shagormley. We are two best friends with one common obsession. Beauty. beauty. And by that, we mean everything that makes you look and feel beautiful. We tried it all and we've got your back. We'll be calling on all our favorite health experts, industry insiders, and friends to answer all your beauty questions. Consider us your beauty 411 and sometimes your 911. From how to fix brassy hair to the pros and cons of laser facials and always with a cocktail in hand, always. So be prepared to be obsessed. Check out Lipstick on the Rim wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to RealPod, everyone. Hope you're having a fantastic morning. I'm so excited because today I'm going to give you a big update on wedding planning and where we are at and tell you about some major news that we solidified in wedding planning over the weekend, which is we found our venue and we finalized our date. Woohoo! I know. So freaking excited. I want you guys to feel involved in this process with me and I want to give you all the scoop and the juicy deets. I know how much you guys loved the engagement episode and lots of you left comments and reviews saying you're so excited to hear more about the wedding. So I thought it would be really fun to start to add when necessary, not every episode, but when there's something big to add a little chunk on the front of these episodes where I give you the scoop. So that's what we're going to do today. If you do not care about my wedding, that's okay. That's okay. I get it. You can just skip ahead, skip ahead to the interview. No harm, no foul. But if you do want the tea, stay tuned. So I'm just going to dive right in. I wanted a very traditional, classic feel for my wedding. I wanted to wear a ball gown. I wanted to feel royal. I wanted to just have classic Cinderella vibes, but not like a tacky, like I'm going to wear a sparkly blue dress, but like a very, you know, Kate Middleton moment is kind of my thoughts. So along with that, you know, comes this idea of getting married in a church. And that was honestly something I had always thought that I would do. Growing up, I feel like in movies and rom-coms, you always see these beautiful church weddings, these big church doors, this aisle, the pews, everyone stands up. You have like the platform and all this light is coming into the church and it's just, it's stunning. However, (laughs) 
as I have gotten older and, you know, things start to set in, you realize that getting married in a church is not and should not be done because you like the vibe of the church, but more so because of the meaning and how special and sacred it can be to have that type of ceremony. Now, I was baptized Greek Orthodox. Max was baptized Catholic. And without going too far into detail here, I just kind of realized that now in my adult life, I prefer the idea of having an officiant, someone who knows us. We can customize the ceremony. We can have a Bible verse read if Max wants to do that. We can add some Greek tradition like the Stephana, which is this beautiful tradition where you wear these crowns. And I want to wear the crowns that my Yayan Papu wore. So overall, I just kind of realized I want like a do-it-yourself, like mix and match type of ceremony. And oftentimes if you get married in a church, you have to like use their priest and abide by their protocol and X, Y, Z. This was a bummer for me to kind of like internalize because like I said, I'd always wanted that church feeling. So when we first started the venue hunting process, I was like, okay, let's look for abandoned churches or churches that would let us, you know, use the church, but we don't have to use the priest and and the whatnot. And so we're looking for these places, but as it starts to set in like what this would actually be, like if we found it, I'm kind of like, okay, this is a little odd. I'm like, I'm going to have everyone come to a church and then we're going to go inside the church. And like one of our friends is going to like officiate the wedding. And, you know, I just felt like you have to do it all or not do it in there. And I was definitely bummed because I'm like, where am I going to get that indoor traditional classic vibe? And that was another thing I wanted was indoor ceremony. I just didn't want people to be outside in the sun. I didn't want people to be sweating. I just thought that an indoor wedding, like I said, had that very traditional feel. However, when you are looking to have a wedding in California, um, shocker, every wedding venue is outside. I mean, the weather is beautiful here. I guess I shouldn't have been so shocked, but I was definitely bummed because I was just slowly realizing, okay, unless we find like a ballroom or a building that has beautiful windows, like we're not going to get the vibe that I'm looking for. We actually did find one place that was gorgeous and it was actually an abandoned church and it was all white, uh, white marble. Like I'm, how perfect is that? However, it wasn't in the best area and you would have to have the ceremony and the reception in the same room. So you have your ceremony, then they clear it out while you have cocktails outside and then you come back in for the reception. And I just didn't love that idea. You know, I just felt like people would go stir crazy being in the exact same space for like, 10 hours. So that made it a no. It was like, if that place could be anywhere else, it would have been different. I mean, I don't know. So we came very close to finding something similar, but there were so many other factors that weren't perfect that my mom was like, Victoria, the ceremony ends up being so short. She was like, you really want to base your entire wedding day around having this 30 minute moment in this, you know what I'm saying? And and that was helpful. My mom is talking a lot of reason, a lot of sense into me. Another thing too, that I think is important to share with you all is really the feeling I wanted, which was a very European type castle, fancy, you know, royal wedding. Like I love a ball gown. I love Max in a tuxedo. I love coming out of a car. You know, I just wanted those vibes. Another kicker about California wedding venues is not only are most of them outside, but they just have a totally different style than what I'm looking for. They are like under beautiful oak trees. They are on the sand at the beach. They are weddings where you would wear a flower crown and you would have beautiful greenery. 
all things that are gorgeous in their own right, but just not the style that I want. So I was feeling kind of, you know, bummed, stressed, frustrated in the beginning because I was like, oh my God, why can't I find something that is perfect for what I want? Not to mention for the reception, Max and I really want it to be fun. We want it to be a party. We want everyone to have an amazing time. And so for the reception, we were like, we want to do a tent with twinkling lights and we want to do it outside. And, you know, we wanted for the reception something that I think pairs better with a more modern ceremony. And so it was this weird thing where we're like, okay, I want this ceremony that's very formal and traditional, but we want this reception that's completely the opposite. Long story short, my mom and I spend many weekends looking at venues. I think we went to like seven. I want to say we did seven. I don't think it was more than that. Max unfortunately could not come because of football. He literally works seven days a week. He was totally fine not being there. The plan was just we would go look and vet these places out. And if any of them were like really excited about, then Max would come back with me on another day and I would show it to Max. So anyways, it's like I think the third weekend we're doing this and we're getting a lot of venues in each week. It's exhausting to do these things. It's so fun. Don't get me wrong. It is so, so, so fun. But then once the fun wears off and you're like, okay, I just want to find the venue and I want to just get the date. Like it's, it's, you know, a strenuous process. So anyways, there's one weekend that we're looking at wedding venues and Max is actually free or he's not free, but I'm like, babe, can you please find the time to come today? We're going to see three different places. I think this could be a good day for you to come. So Max is like, yes, I can come. Mind you, the following weekend, we had plans to go look in Napa for wedding venues. Um, I'm from Northern California, so that could have been a fun, like close to home feel. However, once again, Napa just, I wasn't hyped about it. I just didn't want to do wine country. I didn't want to do all the vineyards that just, once again, not the style that I'm looking for. So I was feeling a little bit frustrated. I'm like, darn it. I feel like we've done all, we've been through all the California places that we can consider, you know, all things considered. And I wasn't super hyped about this day with Max because the places we were going to go look at are like very beachy and beachy is also not something I wanted. You know, I just, can you see Kate Middleton getting married by the beach? No, you can't. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. It's like, I didn't want to get married by the beach. Also, Kate Middleton's not the best example. I guess when I say, I'm not like a obsessed with, I mean, she's great. No, nothing against Kate Middleton. I guess what I'm just saying is like, that's the vibe I'm looking for. Oh, you know who's a good example? Oh, Jasmine Tukes. Is that, I hope I'm saying her name right. The Victoria's Secret model who just got engaged. That whole wedding, stock that. That's like what I'm looking for. So Max and I gear up, we're on our way. And the first venue we walk in, it's amazing. I mean, the vibes, it's like a hotel resort which I wasn't thinking we would choose because, you know, we didn't want to have our reception in a ballroom just because the ballroom felt a little eh. And Max and I being athletes have spent so many days in ballrooms watching film on games on the road. So the idea that we'd have a a party in a hotel ballroom just felt like something we would never want to do. However, we go outside to the ceremony spot and it was beautiful. And it had a little bit of everything that I was looking for. It had these beautiful stairs, okay, with these railings that look like a castle in Europe. And if you actually go to the in, my Instagram, I posted a picture of Max and I at the venue and you can see right behind us is those railings. Like that's what I'm talking about, you guys. It has these stairs and it literally looks like a castle that you could find in like Europe from this side of the hotel. So I loved that part of it. And then 
obviously I wasn't super hyped about having the wedding outside. However, at the end of the aisle is this already built structure. It has like these four, I think it's like four or five, like really big, beautiful white pillars. And there's a topping over the pillar. I don't even know. It was, it's not a dome, but it's like, imagine like a gazebo that you'd see in a garden, but this is like a European one that's white with pillars. So it was beautiful. Also, you cannot see the beach. Like this is like hidden. It is surrounded by beautiful greenery, palm trees. It has the perfect mix and match of what I wanted, which was that European royal Cinderella moment, but mixed with California fun, which is like what Max wanted. So we fell in love. And you guys, I literally teared up. Like when we were standing there looking at this ceremony area, my eyes got watery. You know how people say they see their life flash before their eyes? I saw my wedding flash before my eyes. I was like, I see it all. It's going through my head. This is perfect. And then the ballroom that we would use in the hotel is like right up these stairs that I would walk down. And you guys, these stairs are so iconic. I wish I could like show you pictures and all that stuff, but I do want to refrain from very specific details just for obvious reasons. So I hope that my explaining is doing it justice. Anyways, we will go up the stairs again for a cocktail hour and then inside the ballroom for the reception. And Max and I were not super excited about the ballroom. However, the wedding planner we're working with is super great. And she was like, we can put up curtains and we can hang string lights. And she was like, trust me, we can transform this. People will not feel like they're in a hotel ballroom. So I'm super excited about that, trusting her on it. And it's really fun. We get to create like a very club, sparkly, magical feeling for the reception, which is definitely what we want. The last thing that was big for me about why I loved this venue is it feels like a destination. Now I'm getting married in California. So part of me was a little bit bummed about like, I don't want to hop in my car and drive 15 minutes to Santa Monica, like for the wedding, because I literally live here. Like I drive these roads all the time and I just wanted to feel like my wedding was an event and I was going somewhere. And that's, you know, the kicker is like, we live in such a beautiful area. We're so lucky to live in Los Angeles, but I didn't want to get married in the same place that we lived. And this place is like, you definitely have to like stay there for the weekend. And we really wanted that community family feel with our guests where everyone's coming in. We're all staying at the same place or in the same area for the weekend. And we feel like we have that getaway. So that was also a big reason we loved this place. As for the date, we are getting married in 2022. So we really got this going fast. My mom definitely is a fan of a quicker engagement. That's what her experience was like. That's what my Yaya's experience was like. Also, my Yaya, she is not getting any younger and I want her at that wedding. So we definitely didn't want to just postpone it to postpone it. And I'm really happy that my mom's kind of been on me to like get these things done and to help me because if it were up to me, I would have just like gone back to work after the engagement and been like, well, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. And then it would be like three years from now and we'd still be engaged. And I just wanted to avoid that happening because, you know, I just, I wanted to avoid it. So yes, our wedding is in 2022. I am not going to share, you know, the exact date. However, it's a good date. It's a good date. I'll say that. And you will be excited when I do get to share it with you. So yes, that's where the Victoria Max wedding will be taking place. A beautiful outdoor ceremony with these European stairs down. There's a beautiful aisle to a very traditional, I guess you could call dome, although it's not a dome, but you could imagine something like that under the beautiful California palm trees and then inside to a very 
fun, sparkly, and magical reception. I'm so glad we have these two things figured out, venue and date, because they are the most important. You got to get these things done before you can really, you know, do everything else right. But now, I mean, now is the fun stuff, I think. That was stressful for sure. But now it's like we get to decide on all the fun things. And I'm going to be asking my bridesmaids soon. And I'll be vlogging that and sharing all of that with you guys too. And I mean, trust me, I am so happy to talk about all this wedding stuff. So if you guys enjoy it, if it's entertaining for you, if it's helpful, if you're planning a wedding or whatnot, please do message me and let me know because that is so, so helpful. Okay. Well, now we are going to get to the introduction for today's guest. His name is Ryan Holiday. He is the author of 10 books, including New York Times bestseller, The Daily Stoic, 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living, which have sold more than 2 million copies and have a following among NFL coaches, world-class athletes, TV personalities, and political leaders. You guys, The Daily Stoic is amazing. If you have not heard of it, if you've not read it, it is an incredible little book to have by your side. You read a page every single day that corresponds with the day it is in your life. It's so easy. It's so helpful. And I've learned so much, which is why I was so excited and eager to get Ryan on the podcast. On today's episode, Ryan shares more about his newest book, Courage is Calling, which is available now. I linked it in the description. He explains to us the different types of courage, the four pillars of stoicism, how our egos can seriously play into imposter syndrome, and provides more insight into how to set goals that you'll actually reach. One last thing, I want to give a shout out to Elise Rainey, who left a review last week that says five stars isn't enough. I'm a new listener to RealPod and I cannot recommend it more. I have just begun a self-love confidence journey and it has been so wonderful to listen to others who have been in similar places. Elise, thank you so much for this review. Five stars isn't enough. That literally made me laugh and it also made me happy inside. Thank you so, so much. And I'm so glad you're enjoying the show. And thank you to each and every one of you who comes back to listen every single week. I want to thank you for your time and for trusting me with these conversations. If you want to be the shout out on next week's episode or let me know how you're feeling about RealPod, head over to iTunes. It takes just a few seconds to leave a rating and a review and it really helps out the show. Without further ado, let's dive into this episode with New York Times bestselling author, Ryan Holiday. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on RealPod. I'm thrilled to have you. I've been a big follower of your work for a while now. Lauren, actually, Lauren Everts got me hooked on your stuff from when I had her oh, on the really? show. <laughs> and now my whole family are like avid daily stoic people. We text each other after reading. And I'm just excited to talk to you about, you know, your new book, Courage is Calling, and also pick your brain about all these things because I, I want the high school, college generation to start adopting a lot of these ideas because I think the younger you kind of understand these things, like the better we're going to be able to navigate life. Would you agree? <laughs> I would. So I was introduced to stoicism when I was a sophomore in college. I was 19 and it changed the course of my life. So I feel like I was lucky to get it then. If I'd gotten it when I was nine, that would have been better. <laughs> what was it exactly that uh, changed the course of your life? So do you know who Dr. Drew is? That sounds so familiar. Well, when I was a kid, he had this show called Loveline, a uh, radio show. And I grew up listening to it. And when I was in college, I was writing for the college newspaper. I went to a, a conference and he was speaking. And I went up to him after and I said, you know, like, I really love to read. 
what books do you think someone my age should be reading? And he recommended the Stoics. And I went back to my room and I bought it on Amazon. And, and that, that, was, that was what changed the course of my life. And now the Stoics, I recognize some of the names. Can you brief us on uh, who these legends are? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was funny. I, again, the age, the age gap is starting to be real for me. I was talking to a, a, a kid who'd, who'd read my books and gotten into Stoicism. He's in his second year in the NFL. And he was like, hey, have you seen this movie Gladiator? It's also about Stoicism. And I was like, yeah, that's like one of the greatest movies of all time. But like, then I realized he wasn't even born when it came out. And so Marcus Aurelius is, is in the movie Gladiator, probably the most famous of the Stoics. Seneca, Epictetus, Cato, Zeno. These are some of the names that people might be vaguely familiar with as far as it comes to the Stoics. But when I talk to people about Stoicism, I try not to throw like names at them. I try to either throw like who these people were. Chrysippus, one of the early Stoics, is like an Olympic level sprinter. One of them is a boxer. Marcus Aurelius is the emperor of Rome. They're senators, authors, merchants. They're like real people who have real jobs who happen to also use philosophy in the course of that job. So we often think that philosophy is like abstract or impractical or theoretical, which it certainly can be. But in the ancient world, philosophy, like religion, was supposed to be something you used in your life every day, whether you were a slave, as uh, Epictetus, one of the Stoics was, or you were emperor, as Marcus Aurelius was. It's like whatever level of society or, or your circumstances were, you, there was something there for you to use. Now, speaking of that age gap with the boy in the movie Gladiator, I got to be honest, I recognize the word stoic before I think yeah. of stoicism. Like I would know what, oh, yeah. stoic, you know, you're not really showing emotions. You're very rock solid in your expressions. And then I learned this term stoicism. And, you know, as I hear those names and as I was diving into your work and whatnot, I start to recognize things, but I don't know if it was me or what, but I think I like checked out in middle school and I like, did these people, so you said there was a slave and there was an emperor. Did they form a group and like huddle up on, on these philosophies? Like I need the for dummies. <laughs> no, of course. And you almost certainly didn't learn about it in middle school unless you had like a classical education where they also taught you Latin. But I think it's important, your point that like you've heard the word stoic. Is that the same as stoicism? And they are not the same, especially today where we're much more aware about mental health, about vulnerability, about asking for help. The word stoic is almost, actually, they, they, some people associate the word stoic with this concept of toxic masculinity, right? Suppressing one's emotions, pretending you don't have the emotions, refusing to be vulnerable, et cetera. That's not what stoicism, the philosophy, is about, right? The capital stoicism and lowercase stoicism are very different things. The philosophy, as I said, is a way of thinking, a way of living, a set of values that come to us from some of the most interesting men and women of the ancient world. Stoic, the lowercase word, just means I'm a robot. I stuff everything down. I don't feel anything. They are very, very different things. I would not argue that someone should be stoic. I would argue that someone should learn about stoicism. And now in Stoicism, you mentioned there is this way of living. And I know there are these four virtues. Can you define those and how they relate and the importance of these four? 
So the cardinal virtues of Stoicism are courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. Courage obviously being the one that I'm writing about the most now, but the the idea in Stoicism is that we don't control what happens in life, we control how we respond. Well, how should we respond? The Stoics say we should respond with courage, with justice, with temperance, which is moderation or self-discipline, and with wisdom. So these are sort of the guideposts that we build a good life around. So since you read the Daily Stoic, you get a sense of like, the Stoics are talking about all sorts of really practical life experiences, like your friend is successful while you are not. How do you respond? Somebody says something mean or cruel to you. How should you respond, right? A pandemic comes and turns your life upside down. How should you respond? These are the kinds of situations that Stoicism is there for. And, uh, and the idea being that we can always respond with one of those four virtues. I'm so excited because I get to tell you about something I drink every single morning that has been a game changer for me. I am obsessed with it. Max is obsessed with it. And now they are sponsoring RealPod and I just am over the moon. Today's episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's a health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. Now, look, I'm not usually a big fan of supplements and things like that, but Athletic Greens does it right. Their mission is just to help all sorts of people get the nutrients its body needs to thrive easily. And with so many stressors in life and so many things going on, I know how difficult it can be to make sure you have access and time to eat those key nutrients that our body really needs. AG1 by Athletic Greens brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to every body. One tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. This special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system. All of this is in one healthy, delicious drink. And yes, it actually does taste really good. Like I said, I have this every single morning, right when I wake up, and I'm so excited to be sharing it with you and also give you a very special offer. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash realpod today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash realpod to receive a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. So give AG1 a try and head to athleticgreens.com slash realpod. You mentioned courage, obviously, is the first virtue, and that's what your new book is about, Courage is Calling. And I'm thinking of this word courage, and I'm like, hmm, I don't really hear that word anymore. I hear confidence. I hear bravery. I never hear courage. And even like being in the mental health space with many people sharing their stories and whatnot, I've never come across people saying courageous. It's always brave or confident or vulnerable or daring. What makes courage different than these other words? Well, I think it's certainly related to those other words, but yeah, there's something about courage that almost feels like a little too earnest, like to be like, that was courageous. It's almost like, it feels like a little lame, like it's like too sincere. It's not ironic enough. Like you could say like, oh, that's really cool. Or you could say that's really badass or something like that. But you like you wouldn't go like act with courage, right? That there, there's almost something too sincere about it. 
which I think is actually an element of courage, like to just say what you think and not care what other people think. Obviously, there's many forms of courage. There's physical courage. There's what they call moral courage. But I would argue that all forms of courage at their core possess the element of risk. You are risking something, right? If it was certain, if it was obvious, it was easy, it wouldn't be courageous. So courage is like when you put your ass on the line, uh, you go out for the team, or you speak up for help, or you run into a burning building to save someone. In all those instances, courage is the risk of yourself or your reputation or your comfort or your, your pocketbook for, for a cause or an idea. What's one of your favorite examples of courage, whether that's present, historic, personal? I mean, there's so, there's so many different examples of courage. Uh, what I try to do in my book is illustrate things with stories. And I think courage, again, is this multifaceted thing. So the courage of Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on a bus and then invoking the civil rights movement, that's one form of courage, right? The courage of Florence Nightingale to, to leave the conventional path in Victorian England to walk away from a sort of a spoiled, entitled life to, to dedicate herself to nursing, courage. The courage of the 300 Spartans who go and fight against the Persians in the ancient world, knowing that they would almost certainly not survive. Winston Churchill or Charles de Gaulle fighting against the Nazis. All of these examples are, are forms of courage, but I think in each one of the stories, we see it a little bit differently. We see a little other part of ourselves or other of our experiences in these stories. And hopefully we take something home that goes, okay, the next time I'm in a situation to do something, hopefully it won't be an army of a million people bearing down on me and it, it won't be segregation on a city bus, but it will be something that I'm going to choose to speak up about or do something about. So would you say that people need opportunity to be courageous? Like, can I just be courageous today or do I have to have done something actionable? Well, you certainly uh, can be courageous today. There is a thing called moral luck which means like the kinds of situations that you find yourself in determine sort of how courageous you can be. You think about the, the young girl who films and, and documents, she wins, a, I believe, a Pulitzer Prize for it. She documents the horrendous murder of George Floyd by, by the Minneapolis police, right? That took courage not to run away, not to avert her gaze, or not to be intimidated by the police. She stands there, she captures this, and she changes you know, the course of American history as a result. Now, that was courageous, but like the reason you didn't do that is in part because you were not there. We can only be as courageous as the circumstances allow us to be to a certain extent. But moral luck is not an excuse. You think about well, what would I do if I lived uh, when slavery was still around? Or what would I do if I lived in France and then the Nazis invaded? To me, part of the answer to that question can be found in what are you doing today about injustices that you see around you. So circumstances and opportunity are part of it. But it's, as you know, we also make our own luck. Right. And is it only external? I mean, there are probably ways you can have courage just based on how you are choosing to show up in the world. Yeah, of course. I mean, the courage to be yourself as opposed to be like everyone else is no small thing. I mean, most people conform. Most people 
round off the edges. Most people don't say what they actually think or march to the beat of their own drummer or dress with their own style. We all kind of do what we think other people want us to do. And I would say social media is a driving pressure on top of this where you're like, well, I don't really think this, but I know this will get likes or something. Or, or we go, I have this opinion, but I understand it will probably upset people. So I'm just going to keep it to myself. And that's honestly the point of this podcast. I mean, it's called Real Pod, and everything I try to do online is just about realness because I remember feeling that way, right? Like, I think we all have an existential crisis at some point in our life. And mine was like 19 years old, depressed in college. Just why am I doing these things <laughs> for who? Yeah. And then eventually you decide to start to think about, okay, well, if I'm not listening to what my parents or these people or the likes or the magazines have told me, what do I want? And it's so wild that that is the, the problem, like that human beings aren't just acting in a way that feels most authentic to them. I was just at uh, Arizona two days ago speaking to some student athletes and a lot of them, it's the imposter syndrome. It's the, I don't feel like I'm good enough for my teammates, good enough for my coach. How do you advise people take steps to let go of that need? Well, it's really hard. And the, the, the further you go, the harder it will be, right? So it's most common in college, but then if transitioning into the pros, it's even harder. The idea that like you were the best player on your high school team, and now you may be the worst player on your team, right? Or you went from being dominant in your league to being like just keeping your head above water, if that. And then just as you, hopefully if you push through, just as you begin to master the game, whatever the game is, whatever the level you're at, whatever the profession you're in, just as you start to get the hang of it in, let's say, college, then you go pro or, 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 or whatever. Suddenly, the whole thing starts over again. Now you're the worst person in that league and you're playing against the greatest people in the world now, right? And so it's really hard. And, and this is where ego is so toxic. If you identify with your success, then when all of a sudden that success goes away and you're struggling, which you ine inevitably will uh, uh, as you grow, it's going to crush you because you went from thinking you were hot shit to feeling like you're dog shit, basically, right? And that's so hard. So if you can identify with something else, with the love of the game, with the effort, with the idea of progress or improvement, if you cannot be so concerned with the external results day to day, you're going to be in a stronger position. Would you say focusing more on the process, not the goal? Yes, yes. And and what is the what is the goal? Is the goal to win, or is the is the is the goal to be the best that you are capable of being at this moment? Right. What you know, I try to I try to attach my goals to things that are in my control. So again, if your goal is I want to be the most famous, I want to be the most loved. I want to be the most, I want to score the most points. I want to be the most recruited, blah, 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 blah. All of that is determined by a lot of factors outside of your control, right? Like, let's say you're an outside linebacker. That's just what you gravitated towards. And that's suddenly where you are. You're not going to be the most recruited player because quarterbacks, uh, for instance, and wide receivers get lots more attention than outside linebackers. If you were, uh, if you uh, dedicated yourself to classical music, 
it's naive and silly to compare yourself to Instagram influencers who have more followers than you, right? Like people who post bikini photos or Ferrari photos are going to be more interesting to a wider swath of the population than someone who does opera. And so your goals have to be attached to things that are in your control. The bestseller list is not something I control, right? Did I write a book that I'm proud of? That is something that's in my control. So I want to focus there. Easy to say, right? Harder to do when you're younger and at the beginning of your career. But it's something you have to work on because you realize and you will realize it will be painful when you realize it, that you can work your ass off to your absolute best and come up short. Conversely, sometimes your worst work will pay off the most, right? You can get lucky. You can be at the right place at the right time. Something can go wrong for the opponent. And so you have to disassociate some of these external outside your control indicators from like what you measure yourself against. I love that idea that your goal needs to be something that you can control. I've literally never thought of it that way. And I'm thinking of all my goals and they have nothing to do with that. I mean, yeah, do I have to work hard? to reach them? Yes. But like, I mean, all of them have to do with other people being in agreement. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, look, is your goal to have like an amazing podcast with cool guests that you enjoy doing and that helps people? Okay. Almost all of that is largely up to you. Is your goal to have the most popular podcast in the world? That's largely not up to you. And so, so what one are you going to attach your happiness to this one that requires you hitting like several lotteries in a row, or are you going to focus on like, who am I going to have on this week? I know that's so true. And I I love that. And also on a previous podcast guest talk about goal setting was talking about how sometimes your goals can be limiting because it's your present guess on what you could achieve or accomplish. And I think thinking of both of those, I mean, inherently, if I'm making a goal that is something I can control, it's usually along the lines of self-betterment, like something to do with going back to stoicism, right? How I'm going to react and what I can do as I'm pursuing the things that I love. And it's just never ending, right? Like this is an example. I recently hit a million followers on TikTok and yeah, I'm not going to lie. Like it's congratulations. Thank you. It's glamorous to hit a million. And it was on my mind for sure. Was I living and dying by it? No. But was I like very aware of it? Yes. And then you hit it and then you sit there and you're like, okay, well, I'm here. Well, what's next? And mm-hmm. life's still the same. Like I'm just sitting in my apartment by myself but it's tough in a society where everyone around you, I mean, parents these days, you raise your kids like on achievements and the gold star and the this and the that. It's it's very hard in the society that we live in that praises achievement and one type of body and one type of life and you know all these different things to change. Yeah, of, of course. The first time I hit number one on the bestseller list, uh, I was mowing my lawn. And uh, my agent called and he said, hey, congratulations. It hit number one. It was a total surprise. We hadn't expected it. It was cool. And then I had to finish mowing my lawn, right? Like life just resumed. That's the perfect example. (laughs) Yeah, nobody throws you a parade. Nothing actually changes. You, You don't even get any money for it. It just happens, right? And then you have to keep doing what you do. The problem is, so we often have these moments where we achieve something that we told ourselves would be really meaningful, would really change us, and, and, and we'd feel good when we got them. 
And then it turns out that they're a little anticlimactic, right? Have you seen that Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix? Of course, big Swifty. She had like every single, like five number one single. She'd won every Grammy that year. And she was just like, what now? Right. And you realize that it was never going to give you the thing that you wanted it to give you. Now, the problem is some people take from this, oh, I just didn't accomplish enough. Right. They win a championship. They get a million followers. It's like the line in a social network. A million dollars is cool. But, you know, what's really cool. A billion dollars. Right. We just move the goalpost and we go, oh, I need to do it again. It will feel better when I do it again. And so you get on this treadmill that you never get off. I think you want to get to a place where you accomplish something. You realize that it was never about that, that the accomplishment will never give you what you thought it will give you. Your parents, if they weren't proud of you already, they won't suddenly become proud of you. If, if you didn't feel good about yourself, you won't suddenly feel good about yourself. If you don't like it, you won't like it if you have more of it. You have to realize that it's not about the external things. It's about the process. And then you go back and you continue, you can continue doing what you're doing, but you do it from a place of enjoying the process rather than needing the external result to validate the experience. Do you think there's an aspect of readiness to fully feel that way? Because look, I consider myself like I understand, like I'm, I Mm -hmm. think I'm smart and I could have told anyone four years ago, the process, not the goal. And I heard it, but I didn't really believe it. And I've now time and time again, check things off my list. And I sit here and we have this conversation, but I'm just still not able to let go. Why is that? Well, I think some of these things you have to like, I can only tell someone that it's not going to mean what you think it's going to mean. And then you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's easy for you to say. You've done it, right? Some of these things you have to experience to truly believe them. I think it's just a question of like, will you learn that lesson early or will you learn it at the expense of everything else in your life, right? Like, will you tear apart your marriage trying to make some fortune? Will you be absent from your children's lives chasing some external goal? Will you grind yourself into dust, right? Like wear yourself out chasing something, thinking that it it will eventually be worth what, you know, some of these things you have to learn. I just hope that someone can hear what we're saying and then at a slightly more minor accomplishment in their own lives, have the understanding of it as opposed to needing to go all the way. It's like, Every addict knows that drugs are not good for them. They've, un- they've heard all of the warnings. They've heard all of the, the sayings of sobriety, but you have to have some rock bottom moment where you really get it. Now, with all of the work that you've done, I mean, do you feel like you have a great grip on mindset and confidence and all of those things? Like, I mean, do you cry? Do you get depressed? Like, is, is that possible for humans? I mean, as someone who really lives and breathes the work. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm working on it always, right? Like I don't think I'm perfect at it. And I think one of the reasons I write about it and think about it a lot and talk about these things is because I am struggling with it. I, I don't want to come off and I try not to come off as someone who's somehow mastered all of this, but I like to think of myself as someone sort of also on the path. 
Well, that's that's refreshing to hear. <laughs> I mean, you don't you don't come across that way, but it is nice to to, to for me to know someone who really knows this stuff inside and out is a human as well. And once again, this idea that we're going to reach this perfect place and have all the stars align, you know, there it is again. It's sneaky. Yeah, you never know what's going on behind closed doors. Like everyone's struggling with some with something. Everyone has issues. Nobody's doing as well as they would like to do. And so, yeah, it can be really easy, again, especially with social media, to sort of fetishize or assume that you think you have an understanding of what someone's doing. And you just have to remember, like, do you post the worst moments from your life? No, you are seeing only what people want you to see. And it takes some level of discipline to understand that, that, that this is not reality. So that word discipline, I think it plays a role in kind of all these things, the virtues, the habits that we need to make in our life and whatnot. I mean, nowadays, everything else just seems so much more important, right? Like there are all those surface level attractions. There is money, there is work, there is family. Like I even find that my own fiance and I, like, I just kind of feel like we're just working and the months are going by and I'm like, can we get present? Can we go on a trip? Can we slow down? I mean, how do you even incorporate these things into your life so that you can feel more present? That's kind of the weird thing about the pandemic. I can't quite tell if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I have like lost all conception of time. Like, I, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if things happened like two weeks ago or two years ago. And I think if you actually love what you do, it only compounds that because like you really do get lost in it and you really do like just love waking up and sort of grinding on it. it. It can be really easy. I mean, my my book on stillness was sort of my attempt to wrestle with this because it was where I was in my life at that time. The need to slow down, the need to be present, the need to enjoy it while it's happening is really important because like, again, the pandemic is a good reminder that like, it can also go away at any moment, right? If you tell yourself like, oh, okay, this is just my freshman year, or this is just my rookie year, or this is just my first book, So it's going to suck. I'm going to hate it, but I'm just going to grind through it. I'm just going to grit my teeth and bear it. And then when I'm older, when I'm more successful, when I'm more established, like then I'll have fun. Like then I'll appreciate it. Then I'll slow down. Okay. Well, what if you blow out your knee in the middle of the season? You're going to, you'll, you'll, you won't ever get an opportunity again. Right. And so I think one of the things that stoicism tries to remind us is the future is uncertain. All you have is the present. Does that mean you shouldn't work for a future? No, but it does mean that you should try to enjoy the moments while they are there. To not do that is is wasteful. Right. And that's something I've been trying to think about now, like planning a wedding, all those things. It's all about the future and it's stressful. And then I'm fearing that on the day of a wedding, I'm not even going to be present like, that's my biggest fear, honestly, that everyone's like, the best day of my life was my wedding and that I'm going to be there, like, not even feeling present. No, it, it happens. People turn what what should be a fun celebration into, like, a free work, like, work that they're doing, like, unpaid, miserable work. And it's 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 awful. Like, they, they not only punish themselves, they, like, punish everyone around them, too. It's 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 nuts. It's very sad. But that's what we do. We take things that should be fun and we... We turn, we, we turn them into jobs. 
Right. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. This has been really a cool conversation. I feel like we went a lot of places and so excited to be diving into your book and look forward to the other three coming in this. No, no rush, but the other three coming in the series. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of RealPod. If this hit home or helped you in some way, send it to a friend, a teammate, roomie, share the love, share the realness. New episodes of RealPod come out every single Wednesday. So make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To leave a rating or review of the show, head to iTunes and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you. Not to mention, you can stay connected with RealPod throughout the week seeing behind-the-scenes info and sneak previews of upcoming guests by following the at RealPod account on Instagram. All information about today's show and guests will be linked in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening. I love you guys so, so much. Let's go dominate the day. And as always, keep it real.